Fresh Art International presents conversations about creativity in the 21st century. Good morning. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird, and today we're live streaming from the studio at Jolt Radio, Miami, Florida. This is the 25th of October in the year 2017. And I'm telling you that because Fresh Art International is at a new threshold. We've been covering the contemporary art beat in Miami and the world for six years of podcasting and one year on Jolt Radio. Thank you, John Kenyer. We appreciate it. The founder invited me to join him last year to do a show, and it's been fantastic. We're also a finalist for the 2017 Miami Night Arts Challenge. We're at the edge of our seat about that right now. But nonetheless, the show goes on, the beat goes on. And I, again, thank John for inviting me to be here and do this weekly show. I also want to thank my team, Evelyn Zapata and Colette Mello in Miami, and Gune Oson and Alyssa Moxley in Istanbul, and Athens, Greece, respectively. And thank you, listeners. We are planning a special pop-up thank you event for you on Saturday, November 4th here at Jolt. Breakfast and the Beat, we're calling it. Because we do the Art Beat, we will come here and gather from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. that Saturday morning, come for coffee and conversation and a bit of breakfast food, meet local artists and collect their work, And we'll be doing a miniature pledge drive, like you know on the public radio, they do it for a week. We're doing one hour pledge drive from noon to 1 p.m. And we'll have some creative giveaways for you if you join us and participate to help Fresh Art International keep going. So save the date, Saturday, November 4th, and look for the event on our Facebook page to sign up. Now for today's amazing show. We are talking about architecture with a sense of place. We're bringing you conversations with artists and architects whose work responds to cultural and environmental conditions that influence our built environment and our lives. And in the studio today with me is Miami-based architect Haya Cater. Welcome. Thank you. Pleasure More, to be here. Yeah, I'm happy to have you here. Haya uh, is the founding principal of KZ Architecture, and that's an award-winning enterprise she's into that has received awards for design excellence and sustainable building practices, both of which we'll be talking about today. But before we talk about your exciting design project, your most recent one, Haya, I'm excited to share a conversation on some of the same topics we'll be discussing that I recorded a few years ago in Austin, Texas, with Jack Sanders. He's founder of Design Build Adventure, and Jack is a great storyteller. You're going to love this. Today, I'm in Austin, Texas, with artist Jack Sanders. He's from Cleburne, Texas, and studied at Auburn University and the University of Texas, Jack is the founder of Design Build Adventure, a company offering services including design, construction, and project management, but also he includes in his list of services public art, adventure planning, storytelling, and dreaming. I just, I love that description on your site. 
And I noticed that you studied with Sam Mockby and everything you do from what I've learned about you so far has seems to be profoundly influenced by the time you spent with him and the rural studio. You've even co-produced a documentary film about him. So I'd really love to know more about that. Okay. Well, I, I'm just one of those people that wasn't real clear on what I was going to do and you know, ended up at Auburn University just without a lot of direction. I think an, you know, a guidance counselor who I'd told I wanted to study art suggested architecture. And I ended up in an architecture program and was asking a lot of questions about whether I should be there and contemplating maybe film school and ended up without knowing that I had landed at, at Auburn University just at a really amazing time, you know, not many years after Samuel Mockby had started the Rural Studios. And to get to leave campus and go to the, you know, the, the smallest, this small town in Alabama, one of the poorest counties in Alabama, and, and get to work with, with Sambo Mockby and with the community, with Hale County, Alabama and the residents there, just immediately, it was like, I don't care what degree is going to come of the, become of this. This is what, this is what I want to be doing for sure. And I was hooked. And I went back and did my thesis work out there. So I was I spent a good portion of my architectural education at Auburn in Hale County, Alabama. And for the most part, I think Design Build Adventure and all the work that we've been doing since then has been trying to maintain the the spirit and the excitement and the enthusiasm that, that we all had at that time. It was such a it was kind of a running joke at our in our program that it was all downhill from there. You know, even Sambo would joke with us about that because he knew how much fun we were having. It just was a joy to, to work. Maintaining that sense of wonder that he had created for us as 18, 19, 20 year olds has kind of been a challenge for me personally. And I think the adventure part of Design Build Adventure, that's 100% what it's related to. My particular story was, you know, we leave the main campus and as a second year architecture student, leave the, the bars and the football games and the, you know, Greek life and move to a town that really had the type of poverty that probably most of us didn't know existed. And we moved directly into that community and started to interact with people and, and use the energy that we had to to design and build. On the weekends, the building would slow down and you would just start to just try to find things to do. Was it whether it was the you know, to get invited to church with somebody or to go to, a, you know, somebody's house for dinner or to go to a local club or whatever you could do to kind of become a part of the, you know, the community. And after being there for several months, on, I stayed in for a weekend and on a Sunday I got invited to, I met a guy at, a, at the Piggly Wiggly, the local grocery store, and and he said, would you like to go to a baseball game? And I, you know, I went to a baseball game with this guy with two other classmates of mine, you know, we're only second year architecture students and we get taken down a dirt road that ends up being like maybe two miles from where we where we were working and living as a, as a university program. Just back through the trees and down this dirt road was a sandlot, all African-American baseball club that had been operating on this piece of land for 75 years, 80 years, and a really high level uh, competitively of baseball with neighboring towns bringing teams. 400 people would be there in this town of 200 people. I went in um, and basically knew that that I was going to come back to this ball field and do my thesis project. And we didn't tell anybody about it either. 
the backstop there had been this chicken wire and you know cedar logs cut down right there some of the posts were probably trees coming out of the ground you know people kind of built their own benches and seats where they sat every week it was really you know grown it was a really interesting experience because it was designed but designed over 75 years and we were really timid about you know pulling some of that apart you know to build something new and you know, when it finally came down to it they were like oh that old thing let's go i tore it down in four hours and and then there we were we had a project to rebuild that over the next couple of months and that project ended up in the whitney biennial again i was just there at, at such a great time sambo had been had been sick had had leukemia it was in recovery and the paintings that were coming out of him and the projects that he was willing to take on he'd won the macarthur grant you know all this great th- all this just energy was out there you know and every weekend it was another film crew or a magazine or oprah or we knew what we were doing was being appreciated and and it was exciting and and at one point the curator from the whitney had called and wanted to talk to sambo and the big question was you know we didn't know if it was it sambo's artwork was it the rural studio what was it? And they ended up saying, we want to show three projects that, you know, represent the Rural Studios work. And one of them was the Newburn Baseball Club's backstop. So we all got to go to the biennial and, you know, quite a moment in our, in our, in our young art careers, for Definitely. sure. <laughs> On your website, you mentioned, I know you're collaborative and you had that experience with Sam, that you have a rule about working with clients that we have to get to know each other is what you write. And what's behind that philosophy? Well, I mean, I think it's rooted in the rural studio philosophy for sure. But I mean, for, for me, really, it's, it's that it's that we've got, I mean, that's the real joy in it for me. And I, I think is getting to know, you know, getting to know the client and their kind of their aspiration of what it is that they're imagining that's going to, you know, that they need to do in their life. And, and, and I think sometimes we, we hope and want that it's just going to come out and that we can design it real quickly and just nail it on the first try. But I think what we learn is that it just tends to take a lot longer than that and comes out much more through the development of the relationship between not just the client and, and the designer, but also the client, the designer and the site that they're going to be working on or I mean I think the most direct story from Rural Studio that comes to mind was was that while my teammates and I were at the Newburn Baseball Club we were for the first several weeks of the project we were cranking out designs paper 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 model 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 over and over and just not really getting anywhere not feeling like it was getting anywhere and we would try to hold meetings with the team and ask questions and they'd give us pretty general answers about what would be this and what would be what would be good for that and at, at the end of the day I don't think the real breakthrough came until the day that I was sitting in the bleachers and 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 one of the teams one of the other opposing teams was short a player and they called out to me to come play right field and then and I remember having a moment out in the field and looking and seeing my partner Marnie was braiding hair in the bleachers and my friend James had made a friend who he was drinking beer with and I'm out playing right field. That suddenly there was a breakthrough in our in in our confidence of as designers as okay, we can do this. They trust us to do this, and they trust us to find what the right answer is. And it it's not going to happen overnight, and it's not going to happen in with one one sketch. I mean, you can look back at those sketches and might find 
some of the roots and the the important stuff in there, but it's not the solution comes out with a little bit of time and 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 getting to know each other. Really, it's like slow architecture. Absolutely. Design Build Adventure was deeply involved in the creation of El Cosmico, which is this very interesting lodging opportunity in Marfa, Texas, which involves vintage trailers, yurts, teepees, and an outdoor bathhouse. At some point during my graduate school education, I had the opportunity to meet Liz and, and she had told us about the work she was doing in Marfa with this El Cosmico project. And I think I had just started to talk about Design Build Adventure. Kind of as a tryout, I was one of the producers of the, the first party out there, which was called the See It Before It's There. And we all basically, the same weekend that there's still the El Cosmico festival, we all went out there and you know set up a little camp and had a party and 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 for the most part that was that began the relationship with me and and Liz and Bunkhouse and El Cosmico and it was a good opportunity to exercise a lot of the rural studio kind of beliefs out there and one of those is probably I mean I think at rural studio we'd call it design build design build design build which is even though we think we're going to design and then build about halfway through build we realize there's some more designing to do. And I think at El Cosmico particularly, you know, it, it actually the pace and the way that things go out there and the situation that the project was getting started in, that really worked really well. We weren't going to go out there and just pave it and build a hotel. It actually had to be much more organic than that to be an alternative lodging concept. While we were building El Cosmico, I would end up taking a lot of interns or young people with me um, and we would pack up in the van and the trailer and the welder and, and lay all the tools out and pack all our bags, you know, make a real trip, a pilgrimage out to Marfa and work for two weeks. And, and every day at noon, we'd go to the food shark. We'd be dirty, bandanas, dust, and sweat, and, and everybody would say, what, what in the hell are y'all doing? And we'd tell people, you know, that we're here building and a lot of people would say, well, I want to come work with y'all. You know, this sounds fun. And I think that really led to, you know, again, the bigger discussion of the things that were going to happen at El Cosmico and that happened more organically. There was always a concept of events, workshops, but th this workshop grew very organically out of that. It's really a, a learning vacation. Camp Design Build Adventure is anybody that wants to sign up, no matter what background, we go and stay at El Cosmico and over four or five days work really closely with an organization called the Dare Sioux Collective. And so they came to me and said, we've got this project called Eastside Play that we want to do, which is taking this little piece of land and turning it into a little pocket park for this group of kids that was playing football on the street. And the land was kind of donated for that purpose. And so we knew we needed to build a shade structure and so last year we built, with 18 participants, we designed and built a shade structure in this park and amenities, some benches and some landscaping and a tether ball. This truly is a design build adventure where we are given the opportunity to design this next stage of this park. So we might determine that it's another shade structure. We could determine that it's a basketball court, that it's more furniture, that it's 
offense. The discussion of what's next is a, com a conversation that the participants in the camp will have really intensely with the group of people that the Dare Sioux members and, and people that maintain the park and the kids that play at the park. And then we'll design, come up with some real quick intervention that we think is the right idea and then execute it. And that's all in five days. All in five days. So it's pretty quick. You know, I have a pretty good idea of what's available in terms of materials around there. So I'm able to take them one day and show them like, hey, this is kind of the materials. And that's a big conversation again about what, what materials are available in this area and why. You know, there, there, there's not a lot of wood at that area. And I think that's probably because there's not a lot of trees growing out there. I was going to say, there's yeah. no shade either. Yeah. I vote for another shade structure. That's right, right. You know, all the hardware stores sell this oil stem pipe that is recycled from the oil drilling industry, which is just the near, you know, Midland, Odessa. They bring that pipe down to, to West Texas, and that pipe is used in everything from corrals to sheds to, you know, fencing and, and in the ranching industry. And so that material is really abundant. Adobe, we'll go and visit Adobe structures and talk about Adobe. We're probably not going to stack Adobe while we're there, but we can talk about it and be inside it. So the, the whole workshop is basic construction techniques, but we also acknowledge at the very beginning that we're not here to save the world. It's just a nice, you know, we're here to work, but we want to learn a little bit about construction techniques. We'll learn a little bit about construction basics, layout. You know, I teach everybody how to use the transit and, and really try to read the site and interpret the site. So it's just a kind of a real basic introduction to design, build, and the adventure aspect is just all the great things that there are in Marfa to do. You know, we have this wonderful access to Chinati, the a great bookstore, you know, the ballroom Marfa, you know, and not only that, but just tremendous, tremendous artists and talent in, you know, that we can that give us studio tours or come and participate even in Cause there's a train Good morning. This is Fresh Art International. You just heard my conversation with architect designer Jack Sanders, based in Austin, Texas. Jack is still deep into that design-build adventure that you heard about just now, and he's still offering that camp experience. I think you should look him up online if that sounds appealing to you. He is certainly an artist that's aware of his community and the needs and the desire that he has to engage the community that he is building for is really important to the conversation we're just about to have with Haya Kader, our guest in the studio. I'm going to give you a little background on Haya. She was born and raised in San Jose, Costa Rica. She lived in Boston before moving to Miami, where she launched KZ Architecture. Because of another conversation we'll be sharing with you, we were just talking about the fact that Haya has collaborated with renowned architects, including Moshe Safdi. He's an Israeli-Canadian architect known for his wildly ambitious government-sponsored attempt to reimagine apartment living in the 60s and built this 
Habitat 67 is celebrating its 50th anniversary today. More about him later, but we're talking about his philosophy, and I was studying his work myself and read about his thinking about the role and responsibility of architecture to shape the public realm, have a purpose, respond to the essence of a place, be buildable and sustainable and humanizing, really think about people. And you were telling me. He was my mentor. I learned definitely my my design philosophy was inspired by all that he stood for as an architect. And it's really a profession that entails service. Before I started my practice, I did a lot of institutional work and hospitality work. And uh, it's really how to put our skills to the service of the purpose of what we're building for and the people that we're building for. And it's about context also. It's about how do you bring out the spirit of a place and make building be in harmony with that place and not take away from that place, but enhance the sense of place. And those are all ideas that I learned from Moshe. And in Miami, your principal role is designing luxury residences. Yes. And this is quite a contrast with that, what you've gotten yourself involved in this year in Liberia. I know. Well, I started my practice about 14 years ago. What came along was um, luxury homes. Um, Majority, I do some institutional work, some commercial work. But But a couple of years ago, I went on a trip to Norway on an architecture conference, and I was very moved by a lot of their community work, their uh, the churches, the community centers, the schools, and I kind of put out a desire out there that I wanted to expand the constituency that I served with my skill. I mean, I, I love to serve my clients, and I'm grateful to all of them, but I wanted to just kind of increase that constituency. Now, to be honest, I didn't sign up to go to Liberia, but that's kind of what the universe sent my way. Um, But I started to put my word out there that I wanted to do more institutional work. I I started to reach out to not-for-profits. I worked a little bit with the Hope Effect, which is a small orphanage organization, trying to build orphanages that are more like homes and not like institutions. And then um, somebody put me in touch with somebody in London who wanted to do a school project in Liberia. And I don't know how I ended up going to Liberia, but it was kind of what showed up at my door, and I, I couldn't say no. So, Well, we're going to talk right now about what that means to take that on, designing a school in Liberia so far from Miami in a country that you've never visited before. And I have to say, Liberia is a neighboring country for me, of a country I lived in for two years as a Peace Corps volunteer. So I know the region, and I know the challenges for building, uh, sustaining uh, the built environment, and for finding the materials that you need for projects. There were many homes that were, you could see the cement blocks. The structure was sort of there, but it never was finished. It's interesting because when Simon Crow, who's my partner, he's a leadership coach in in London, and he's the one that wants to do this project. When he reached out to me, I said, "Sure, give me the program, send me some information on the site, and I'll design it for you." And he's like, "No, you need to come to Liberia." And he was so right because I could have never designed this project without understanding 
what's there and how to build there and what limited resources there really are. So it was it really to understand place and to design, you need to go there and understand what it's about. And I think we can both attest to the fact that being in Africa is a transformational experience. Absolutely. When I first got there, I, I was really worried. I didn't know what I was doing there. I felt like, how am I going to do anything here? Because it doesn't, nothing works like you're used to it working. Yeah. So you have to kind of start from scratch, reinventing how you're going to make this happen. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the numbers in Liberia, which yes. I think is, is important. Uh, there are a lot of places in the world in crisis right now. So this is just one example. But in Liberia, let's talk about the education. It's a community with a desperate need to rebuild schools. A 14-year civil war left the country in shambles. They're still recovering. Over 80% of the schools were destroyed. 65% of primary school-age children are not in school. And more than 50% of young people aged 15 to 24 are illiterate. And that's not even talking about the adult population, because I was teaching English as a foreign language in Ivory Coast, the adults didn't know how to speak English or how to read or write. And that was one of my secondary projects was to teach in a village literacy in French. So I know this is a very real and persistent challenge. The school is going to be in Grand Bassa. The closest town is named Buchanan. But the village is a, really a village of huts and shacks. There's no electricity. There's very little uh, electricity in most of these towns in Liberia. So when I got there, I mean, what I saw is that they're building bricks in the village. So we could capitalize on that. We spoke with a couple of engineers that are going to help us build this project. But we couldn't. I couldn't find one true designer architect in Liberia. So we're going to do just a very simple concrete frame, and we're going to fill it with the blocks that are going to build in the village. And then we found a wood mill like 15 minutes away from the village that is going to create the trusses that will be needed for um, for the actual design of the school. Well, there there is a school there now, though. Let's describe well, what, what conditions the, they have for education right now. The school in the village is about, I would say, maybe a 1,000 square feet. It's a shack with uh, clay walls and tin roof. And they have about 500 students that rotate in that little space uh, throughout the day um, so they can go to school. Other children, as they grow up, they have to go to another school and they have to walk two hours each way to get to that school. But if you ask a lot of children in Liberia what their greatest wish would be is just to be able to go to school because it's not free. You have to pay for it. And there's very little available. So what was the response of the community? The woman leader of the village, she approached me with a great sense of grace, love, gratitude, and then she gave me an African name, which is Bardwu. Um, and when I asked what it meant, uh, she said, answer to my prayers. It was so humbling because I literally just, you know, took some of my time to spend in Liberia for a week. I designed a school and I hope that it really makes it, you know, gets built and makes a difference. Well, let's talk about the creative aspect of this design that you have. I've seen the drawings. 
design that's very aware of the environment and the materials available and what can happen in a school. The idea for the school, I wanted it to be very much um, sort of in nature. We have 50 acres of land that were given by the government of Grand Bassa. It isn't only for a school. Their hope is to create an agricultural sustainable community. So it starts with the school as a catalyst, and hopefully it'll grow from elementary to middle school to high school. So there was a sense that it needed to be very flexible, and I wanted it to be very in sync with nature, with all the natural surroundings. So it was developed through, you know, with organic forms. And the materials, the materials are completely locally sourced. Also, we cannot count on electricity, but we're hoping to be able to put photovoltaics in the roof so that they can have some um, electricity. Uh, Let's talk about yes. the beacon of design. The, there's a water tower, right? So, yeah, we needed to have a water tower to to serve the community. It's at the entrance of the community. There's sort of like this semicircular loggia that is sort of welcoming to the site and with the tower on one side and with the office for the um, school on the other. And then you go through that, and then there's a landscape sculpture that is inspired by the flower of life, where you're going to show the crops that are going to be harvested in the in the rest of the site when they build the agricultural community. And then the buildings for the school are all around that sort of sculptural um, flower of life element. Right. And I love the design that you have for the roof, the double roof. And the anyone who's been to Africa knows the need to have, yes. because they can't just have closed-walled buildings. They need air. Well, what happened is that all the schools in Liberia are designed without air conditioning. And what they have as windows is these blocks that have like carvings in it. And when I visited some of these schools, I... I couldn't help but notice how very hot it was. And so I looked at some other architects that are doing very innovative work in Africa, also where there's no electricity. So basically the the school has to have open air circulation. This um, technique of having a double roof is not new, but basically the top roof receives all the heat, and then between the two roofs um, all the heat circulates and escapes. So the actual occupiable spaces are a lot cooler. It's the stack effect where you allow the hot air to rise and, and leave the building. And as the school is starting with an elementary school yes. and is an expandable concept, yes. so other levels of school will be added, other grades will be added. Exactly, yes. And the garden, it just it looks like a planned community in a way, but in a very African-conscious Mm-hmm. Interesting. way. Well, you can actually see it on our website if you like to see drawings and images of the school. It's uh, kzarchitecture.com and you can go to Portfolio and it's the very last project in the Portfolio, Bardwoo School. That's so cool and I, I think it's interesting because so many architects design projects that don't always get built. Unfortunately, that's a, a reality of architecture. We design a lot of things that never get built. It's something, I guess, to be 
reckoned with in our, my profession, but we, we all know that many of our projects, they don't get off the drafting boards. But will this one get off the drafting boards? Of course, it's always our <laughs> hope and our dreams, and we do everything that we can to make our projects become realities. But there's a lot of other factors. They're not dependent solely on us. But fundraising is underway. Absolutely, yes. Fundraising is underway, and we're hoping that we can raise the funds to at least start the first face of the project and that that'll be a catalyst to do the others and to really build the agricultural sustainable community, self-sustaining community. I love this whole idea, and that's why I invited you here. I love the combination of creativity and sustainability and this sense of place. And, of course, I love Africa, so I'm so happy to hear Another person I know understands what that gorgeous place is like. And I'm wondering, in a bigger sense, how did this project transform your idea about who you are as an architect? You know, I think traditionally architects kind of serve the public and they we wait as architects for a tailor-made project to come our way, for a client to come our way. Well, I want to build this or I want to build that. And I wonder what it would be like if we as architects were our, with our skills because we we are one of those professions that have to exercise both the right brain skills and the left brain skills. So I wonder if with those skills, if we could actually identify a need in the world or our countries or our communities or our neighborhoods and then set uh, put our skills to work towards serving that need. As opposed to waiting for a project to come to us, I wonder what it would be like for us to go and identify where there's a need and create a project from scratch. I think that's the greatest lesson that I that I learned from this whole experience of, of going to Liberia. And, and of course, you just never see life the same when you visit these villages because you just are overcome with this extraordinary sense of gratitude for all the blessings that surround us in the Western world, so developed world. Well, I definitely think I hear the philosophy of Moshe Safdie in, in this conversation, your thoughts. I can see how he became a mentor. And our next conversation here was one I recorded with David Hart in Chicago. He's an artist based in Philadelphia. He was born in Montreal, and he also has a relationship with Moshe Safdie because of Habitat 67 that's being celebrated in Canada this year. The Graham Foundation in Chicago commissioned David to create this multi-part installation in the forest. The exhibition revisits a failed project of Moshe Safdie from 1968. It was a Puerto Rico version of a Habitat project, all our minds are on Puerto Rico right now and all they're going through. And we think about the value of someone coming in and designing something for uh, your country, your space. And he certainly did that by invitation. But how does all this hold up against Mother Nature? How does it hold up against the economy and the politics, the relationship of the U.S. and Puerto Rico and all that? David investigates that in his project, and let's listen to what he says about it.
I'm here with David Hart. Super excited to share with our listeners this project you've done called uh, in, the in, the forest. in the Forest. Tell me what we're seeing here in the space. The exhibition is arrayed across two floors at the Graham Foundation, and I really wanted it to function as a, a kind of landscape, an incredibly immersive one, in which once you stepped into the exhibition space, you were almost complicit. You become a part of the piece in some ways. There are a bunch of sculptural elements. They function either as planters or as um, seating units. They're hexagonal, um, and I was interested in this kind of a natural form, but one that was also kind of highly engineered. And for me, it's, it's reminiscent of uh, some of the architectural ideas of Mash Safdi. The other elements are these um, laser-cut and bent aluminum uh, pieces that are powder-coated. Their form is actually quite explicit. Uh, they're based on the roof lines of the Habitat Puerto Rico project. So it's actually one half of the module. So if you were to take two of them and put them together, you would actually have the profile of one of the modular units. There's a number of tropical plants, many of them native to Puerto Rico. The other elements are um, uh, speakers in every room that actually distribute the soundtrack for the film. The film is 20 minutes long. The score that we're hearing consists of uh, an electronic composition by Carl Fusek, who's a, an electronic musician based in Montreal, and field recordings that I made in Puerto Rico. So there's a sonic landscape yeah. of Puerto Rico in this. Yes, very Sounds much. Sounds beautiful. Yeah. When I read a description, I was, I was so looking forward to it. There's a kind of alienating effect. So even though there is that kind of diegetic aspect to, to the sound, when you hear it combined with the, um, the electronic music, it creates a kind of critical distance, if you will. The reality as, as we understand it and a kind of the experience of the exhibition. And this was a project for public housing? It was a public in, housing project. In Puerto Rico? Yeah, and I think they worked on it from 68 to 72. Those are the years, I believe. Some of the reasons that it was uh, abandoned had to do with engineering challenges that they ran into. HUD was providing some of the financing, so it had to be brought in at a specific unit cost. And when they had to begin re-engineering it, it would have increased the price. So they, did, they realized that it wouldn't be viable anymore. So the film is uh, four chapters. The um, original site where Habitat was supposed to be built but wasn't, and which is now a, a nature reserve. It's in a kind of upscale neighborhood in San Juan. There's the Carolina site where construction actually began. And that's the, where the main ruin of the project exists. And then there are also photographs of Arecibo, which is in the north center of the island, which is kind of a beach town. And this photograph here is of um, um, what was, I think, four units that were repurposed as a beach hut and then subsequently abandoned. Kamoy, um, which is more in the interior. And then the other site was Guayama in the south, near Ponce, where there are four units kind of scattered in a huge field near the coast. Uh, Safdi's book, For Everyone a Garden, describes a number of his architectural projects, both built and unbuilt. The uh, Habitat Puerto Rico project, it opens with this aerial shot of that hill that's become a nature reserve. And in the foreground is a commercial plaza. When I saw the image, I realized, oh, that was taken 50 years ago. What exists there now? And actually what I found, it was largely unchanged. 
which really intrigued me, especially given it's the 50th anniversary of Habitat 67 in Montreal. So I was really interested in the different futures that emerged out of those different contexts. One where the project was built and flourished and became a landmark, and the other where something else happened. And then through the analysis of these other parts of the project, I began to realize how it began to function critically about, you know, as I said, the history of colonialism that's still present in, in Puerto Rico and the economic conditions there. So you, you start to use the structures as lenses through which to begin to understand the, the social and political context that they exist within. I'd love to know how this project fits in with your position as an artist. Okay. My concerns have been quite consistent since about 2008. I began making work then that addressed the relationship between ideology and the built environment, and I found architecture to be a useful proxy in terms of talking about broader issues. I try and find these things called singularities, which are sites that are highly representative of a specific ideological position. They can be highly compressed or highly kind of expansive. When I talk about the built environment, it also allows me to shift scales. So I can be talking about an object or a room or a building or a block or a city, or a region, or in the case of Tuvalu, a country. In each case, they're highly representative of a very specific ideological position that almost kind of gave birth to them, allowed them to exist and prosper, and in some cases, disappear. We can trace the qualities of those ideas through what I like to call a kind of dimensionalization of that environment. And part of my practice has to do with this idea of taking what each media can provide in terms of coordinate experience. So photography provides a very specific language for dealing with an experience and understanding of time and space. And film does it very differently. And sculpture does it very differently again. So by combining these elements in a way that I find to be provocative and productive, I'm able to expand and, as I said, dimensionalize my subjective experience of what that idea happens to be. Through that process, there's a kind of selfish aspect in terms of trying to understand my place within the world. But hopefully, as I kind of move through it, I also hope that the audience who experiences the work can see me trying to position myself differently in terms of understanding the complexity of those contexts. And are you frequently drawn to architecture as a form that you explore? Yeah, well, I usually say the built environment. For me, architecture, you know, it depends if it's a capital A or not. <laughs> and it has to do with authorship. That isn't always important. Sometimes it is important. But to have the flexibility to deal with these different expressions and these different scales. So sometimes they're very conscious, authored expressions of an idea. And sometimes they're just cobbled together from what's available. And for me, that's a really important range of Options. There's a lot of research behind this project that shows up in a poetic way, which I love because, as you said, your intent is not a documentary experience, but a, a humanistic embracing view of the issues and society and nature and where it all comes together. The intent was to try and demonstrate that there are a lot of different possibilities, a lot of different outcomes, a lot of different approaches, and that they're all important, as opposed to thinking about something in a very kind of singular and autocratic way in terms of my position as an artist. 
was instead to use the freedom of being an artist to move through the world and to engage differently with these different contexts to create a broad spectrum in which we begin to understand the depth and breadth of human experience. What is your intent for the work in the world? I think this piece is quite unique in the way that it demonstrates the quality of it being a ruin in many ways, even though it sits quite concretely within the present, so it's able to address a sense of contemporaneity. It also has a retrospective quality to it, to be able to think about an idea through time and to have a site be expressive of an idea through time, to see the optimism of the moment when the project began, to see the abandonment, but to see something else kind of be born at the same time and to use those trajectories to then begin to better understand our current moment. You know, what is the legacy of modernism and the optimism of its mission? What did we sacrifice? What did we gain? How have we learned to live with it? How have we responded in different ways to create alternative outcomes? The project begins to address that breadth of time. I think it's also interesting to do it at a moment where the other project is being celebrated. It takes advantage of the focus being elsewhere is a subtle quality to the work. I was just up in Montreal and I saw a wonderful exhibition at the Musée d'Art Contemporain on the legacy of Expo 67. So all eyes are there. And meanwhile, in Chicago, in this piece, eyes are somewhere else. To be able to shift the focus and to broaden the landscape and to talk about how those things are contingent. In a way, the failure of this project is part of its beauty. Well, something failed, but not something else bloomed. That's just as important. Good morning. This is Fresh Art International. You just heard a conversation I recorded with David Hart in Chicago about his exhibition In the Forest at the Graham Foundation. Our program today is about architecture with a sense of place, and we're sharing the voices of architects and artists whose work responds to cultural and environmental conditions that influence our built environment. Next, we're taking you to the Chicago Architecture Biennial that I experienced just a few weeks ago. Chicago's Cultural Center is the setting for these conversations you're about to hear, And curators invited more than 140 participants to express what it means to make new history. Those projects went vertical, horizontal, they were collages, they were built structures, and they were maquettes. And now we're going to hear what someone has termed a vox pop from the biennial exhibition, a few of the voices behind the dense array of projects that I observed. I will first introduce you to Sarah Dunn of Urban Lab, and she'll set the tone. The other ones that you'll hear are introducing themselves from the Bureau of Spectacular in Los Angeles, Urban Lab Chicago, Studio Mumbai in India, and Marshall Brown Projects in Chicago. Here's Sarah. You have the most fantastic installation here. Let's describe it. Okay. So we're in a room with 23 other architecture groups, and we were all asked by the curators to take a really seminal photograph and reinterpret it, sort of make something new out of an old photograph about a really seminal architecture interior. We kind of broke the rules. We chose a photo collage by Super Studio 
a radical Italian architecture collaborative from the 60s and 70s. And it's also an exterior, so whoops. And we interpret it in three scales. So this is the recreation of the actual collage here. Super Studio have done in the past models that use mirrors to create an infinite exterior. They were proposing this kind of total surface that would extend throughout the world, that would kind of be an infrastructural piece that would allow you to live in your like desired lifestyle anywhere. Their original image has a family of basically naked hippies in... <laughs> In a desert landscape <laughs> with the mountains beyond. We also are super interested in leveraging infrastructure to create new possibilities for living, for lifestyle. So leveraging architecture and infrastructure. We recreate their original photograph, collage, and then in the other two spaces in the piece, we have a different scales, kind of a, more exploration. So here it's kind of like extending the super studio idea at a different scale. So that's one inch equals a foot, the main one. And then this scale is half inch equals a foot. And that one is quarter inch equals a foot. And then that one, we introduce our own project, which is a totally theoretical project for Death Valley to introduce a new aqueduct into Death Valley that would provide fresh water and produce at the same time new ways to live, but also kind of new little microclimates for people to take advantage of. Since everybody wants to live in the Southwest, nobody really wants to live in Chicago. So, The colors in this are really wild. Yes. You have a mountain yes. illusion. You also have cacti. Uh, these are all desert plants that exist in the kind of Southwest of the United States and into Mexico. Since we're reinterpreting this the original collage to be in the southwest we put our golden naked hippies into this landscape and we had a lot of fun with our airbrush and made everything super poppy you did fluorescent tell me about (laughs) what urban lab does so we actually work on a number of scales we do typical architectural commissions like houses and housing and things like that and we also at the same time do urban design and so we're working right now on a project for a city in China the populations are moving to the city so they need to basically design whole new cities so we're designing a city in China right now at a master plan level so we're working on different scales but this interest in the urban scale is one that we have both in kind of real projects and in theoretical projects so we also like to do unsolicited thinking about how one can live differently. What about the smart city or the smart, the planning for a future with technology? Is that part of what you envision? Well, we are really interested in infrastructures that maybe haven't really been thought so much of by architects as possibilities for inserting design into. So water infrastructures, for example, both freshwater and wastewater take a lot of energy to process and the infrastructure is everywhere around us but we don't really see it it's usually hidden so we are doing a series of projects to pull that infrastructure out make it a cultural project rather than just a technical project in all of our thinking about the future we're trying to not only deal with the tech because that is better done by engineers we think And that what architects can bring to the conversation is the cultural aspect of it, the possibilities of living. How do you live with this new technology? 
And how could you live without it? Well, it's a beautiful piece and whimsical and yet very serious based on history and mm-hmm. seeing the future. Yes, that's what we were trying to do. Beautiful. Thank, Thank you. you. Hi, I'm Jimenez Lai. I'm Joanna Grant. And they have created this super touchable architectural trope, I would call it. Tell me about it. So we started by looking at the Muller House, Villa Muller from Adolf Loos, and uh, rereading academic work written by Beatrice Colomina, as well as essays by Loos himself about the relationship between uh, a voyeur uh, and a person who's being viewed. And we're talking about the role of power, the role of control, and how architecture sometimes becomes facilitators for that. What's the name of your studio, and where are you based? Our studio's name is Bureau Spectacular. I'm based in Los Angeles. Well, let's describe what people are experiencing here. So this is a roughly 8 by 2 by 2 in size, uh, so (laughs) taller than Shaq O'Neill. The understructure is uh, lumber, but it's platted with sheepskin. Basically, what you're looking at is two interiors. The exterior is also the interior. We were looking at Adolf Loos's Principles of Cladding, and in the Principles of Cladding, he's speaking of architecture as the framework through which you hang soft materials that you then inhabit. So if you look at his proposal for the built project, the bedroom for Lena Loos, he's actually hung sheepskins all over the walls, which translates to the flooring as well, and then is also composed of the bed. So we're thinking how we could interpret Losa's interiors as exterior, and so that's why we decided to clad it in fur. Thinking about this as, as fur also led us to a place where we're thinking about architecture and character. As an abominable snow creature, we're looking at both ends. If the living room is the larger orifice, and the entry sequences are the smaller orifices. We used a medical supply pretty much to produce this, the lip around the orifice uh, that you view through. It's a white-on-white mm-hmm. environment, it's so white it's, on white. it's very elegant and tactile. And people want to touch it. <laughs> and you're inviting them to. I think, I you know, because watching. I think, I think uh, it's interesting when you go to a museum or an institution because right away, for some reason, we all form this social contract to not touch art. And for us, by producing something that is tactile, we're urging people's desire to challenge that notion. Architectural models are not known to be something that you're invited to interact with. (laughs) It's a beautiful piece. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm Bijoy Jain from Studio Mumbai. We're a practice based out of Mumbai in India. What we're presenting, they're divinity structures. They're built during the time of Mohram, which is a period when uh, in Islam they go into mourning. So these structures are built during that time to actually celebrate their saint, and they vary from place to place. So what they're actually building is an architectural expression of that place and the tomb of their saint. These are basically made out of bamboo and tied with the cotton thread. And the gold is a celebration of homage to saint. So we're presenting these somewhere between architecture, just objects that can be translated into n number of different things. And they're very light. There's no cladding on them. They normally would wrap it with very thin rice paper. And what we've done is just peeled away the rice paper to show the actual structure of what makes these buildings. They take these structures at the end of Moram and immerse them in water. 
and so the entire structure then dismantles. So this whole process of regeneration, tying into the main idea of this particular Biennale, making new histories, where that cycle is repeated time and time again, and slowly through time there are sort of subtle transformations that are taking place just in the way that the communication occurs, because it's all word of mouth, there are no drawings. There's a group of people that sit together in a room from someone that's 10 years old to someone who's in their 60s. So it's a community building project. It's, yes, but it's quite interesting because tacit knowledge is passed purely through word of mouth. The moment we transfer that communication, parts of it begin to get altered. It's not an error in a mistake sense, but it's just in the way that it's understood. Through a period of time, you can see transformations taking place. They're all built within a period of a month and then they go back into the ground or go back into water. Oh, and then they repeat this whole process again the next year. I love it. Yeah. It's beautiful. Thank you for Thank sharing you. that with Thank me. You. Marshall Brown, architect based here in Chicago. Tell me about the projects that you have on view here. The display is a series of 11 collages, two very large ones nine with a smaller scale and all together I call the project the architecture of creative miscegenation. It's work that I've been doing for over a decade that explores alternative forms of authorship in architectural drawing and how I as an architect am always inhaling the memory of the architects that came before me in order to produce new work. So it's about taking elements of buildings and architectural concepts from the past, picking them up, cutting them apart, tearing them, and reassembling them in new places to make the future. They're gorgeous. Thank you. I love the collages. Do you build things as well? Yes. So most recently, I built a small pavilion for the Arts Club of Chicago. It was a temporary project in their garden. I've done things as small as a home renovation, I've done master plans for whole neighborhoods. And which neighborhood in Chicago? A few years ago, I completed a master plan for the neighborhood of Washington Park in Chicago. It's on the south side. And most recently, I completed a master plan for uh, redevelopment of part of the Robert Taylor Homes public housing project. What would you like to be designing and building for the world? Well, right now, I'm very interested in, let's say, more archaic forms of architecture, so the weight and the mass of architecture, so maybe even what some people would call brutalist forms and ideas of monumentality. Those are the kinds of things that I'm working on right now in my studio. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. This is Fresh Art International. On today's show, we're talking about architecture with a sense of place. A couple of hours by bus to the west of Chicago is Farnsworth House, designed by Mies van der Rohe for Edith Farnsworth in 1945. I went to witness Modern Living, a site-specific performance choreographed by multidisciplinary artists known as Gerard and Kelly, based out of L.A. and New York. This is part of their Modern Living project, and they brought to Farnsworth a performance score for two dancers who occupy the interior and exterior space of the site in reflections on solitude. You'll hear they also take the opportunity to critique the design-client dynamic. Twirl the hair. 
This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird. We're live streaming from Jolt Radio in Miami, Florida, all about architecture and art with a sense of place. For more conversations on contemporary art and design, visit freshartinternational.com. If you like what you're hearing, please let us know at Fresh Art INTL and at Jolt Radio. Do save the date of November 4 for Breakfast and the Beat with Fresh Art International at Jolt Radio from 11 to 2 p.m. Look for the invitation on Facebook. Thank you for listening. We're here every Wednesday for Contemporary Art Talk.